Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Velvet Machete Leadership Podcast. Become a confident, compassionate leader while sharpening your brand from the inside out. It's time to gear up to learn from expert guests and your host, Amber Hurdle. Welcome back to the Velvet Machete Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Hurdle. And as always, I'm so grateful that you are here spending your limited time with us so that you can get some actionable strategies on how to improve your business, work, and life. And today we are with Mr. Howard Tierski. He is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Winning Digital Customers, The Anecdote to Irrelevance. I love that title. Howard is a founder of two companies that enable large brands to win in the digital world from the Digital Transformation Agency and Innovation Loft. Among his dozens of Fortune 1000 clients are Verizon, NBC, Universal Studios, JPMC, Morgan Stanley, the NBA, and Visa. Howard, you have a very impressive background. So I know we all, myself included, are going to be smitten throughout this interview. Welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you for that kind introduction. And I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. So um, you use a phrase, a terminology that I immediately kind of perked up to because there's a particular word that sometimes is maybe overused or it's made a little more lighter than the true intention of the word. And then sometimes it's used with great power and intention and when I looked through all of your materials and your book and everything, I was like, okay, this is with intention. So you say that achieving, achieving customer love, big word, is the single most important criteria for business success. What do you mean by love? And can you unpack that statement for us? Sure. Well, I, I absolutely do think that, and uh, more than think, I think there's a lot of data to support the idea that when customers feel really passionately about a company, about a brand, that the, the business impact of that is enormous. And I'm happy to give some examples of that. And, but just to be clear about what I mean by love, and yeah, it's a fair question because, of course, we use the word love in a lot of different ways. I mean, people can say, I love my wife, and they can say, I love Starbucks. And they don't mean the exact same thing by those two statements. you know. But of course, what I mean is more like when someone says, I love Starbucks. And we do a lot of uh, consumer research in my company, for example. And there's no doubt that there are brands, there's no brand that's loved by everybody. There are certain brands that have a passionate following and then other people that totally roll their eyes. I mean, there's some people that love Harley Davidson and there's other people that really have negative feelings about Harley Davidson. Likewise, Disney, likewise, Nike, likewise, Starbucks. But then you look at a brand like Citibank, Allstate, Procter and Gamble, right? I mean, you could Chevron, right? I mean, you could list many, many brands across many, many industries. And you said, well, how do people feel about them? And most people say, I, I don't know, Exxon's just working my gas, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And there's not a lot of emotional connection. And so 
uh, this, when I use the word love, what I really simply mean is strong, very powerful emotional connection to that brand. Yeah. So uh, emotional connection, I think that is, that is a key phrase. So, um, when, how can you tell if your brand is making that emotional connection? Yeah. Well, that's a great, uh, great question. And, uh, we have, we have, we have a variety of research techniques we use to try to measure love, but the the (laughs) simplest, the, the quickest and dirtiest is a very one, a one question test that we use to help evaluate how any individual feels about any given brand. And we just ask one question. And the question is, how would you feel if the brand were gone? If Apple, they're out of business, no more iMac, no more iPhone, no more iCloud, iTunes, Apple Music. Oh, look at you. (laughs) My whole office would poof, go away. (laughs) Right, exactly, right. If, If your response is emotional, yeah. Already that's a minority of brands, right? Because if I said, well, how would you feel if Chevron went away? I right. don't think that would really hurt my heart too much. Right, right. And, and if you don't mind my asking, what, what bank do you bank with? I am emotional about that. Wilson Bank and Trust, which is now a regional bank, but it was a local bank when I started. And I have been there since the word teen was in my age and I'm 41 for wow. a reason. Wow. So there's an unusual example of someone who's emotionally connected to the brand that they bank with. Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of people, if you asked how they feel about their, if their bank went out of business, they would be like, oh, well, I mean, that would be a little bit of a nuisance because I'd have to find another bank. Right. Yeah. So we have a scale, what we call a love continuum. And it starts with love and then it goes to resonant, relevant, irrelevant, and non-existent. And so right. When, when you think about a brand not being, a brand being gone, if you feel distraught, overwrought, you think, what would the world be like? How could this happen? What, how could, a, in a just universe, how could this brand be gone? You know, <laughs> these are the kind of strong emotional reactions that we would say will correlate to a feeling of love. That's how you feel when love is taken away from you. Ooh, and then the next one down, resonant, that's not what we refer to in a weaker emotional connection. When you say, oh, really? They don't have business? Man, I'm really sorry to hear that. But then you go on with your day. You know? like, <laughs> <laughs> not going to lose any sleep over it, but you have that moment of, you know, I mean, frankly, like when you hear someone died who you sort of didn't know well, you know, you knew him a few times and you're like, oh, really? But like, what are you going to do, you know, versus someone you really love dies. Obviously, that's a very different experience. Right. And then what we call relevant for many people, this is like their brand. It's like, oh, well, I needed to know that. You know, I don't feel emotionally unhappy because they, they're gone, but it affects me, right? If, if Chevron goes out of business and it happens to be that on my route to work, there's a Chevron station, that means the next time I need gas, I have to turn left on Bay Area Avenue instead of right. I got to make a mental note, right? That's at least a brand that is in some way relevant in my life because I had to know that it was gone. And then you can go below that. There's brands where someone can say, well, how would you feel if that brand is gone? And you say, I, I mean, frankly, other people love this brand, but if someone said to me, Lululemon is gone, same, I'd be like, okay. Yeah. I, I, there's literally nothing I need to do about that. Right. <laughs> I feel nothing and I need to take no action. Has zero. I'll go get life. my leggings at TJ Maxx like I always do. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then the very bottom is what we call um, non-existent. And what that means is that's when someone says this brand is gone and you either say, 
who? Or you say, were they still in business? I thought they were gone a long time ago. So for you mentally, they were essentially already non-existent. So that's the kind of tiered system that we use. And if you just ask someone that one question, you could usually tell pretty quickly, is it a strong emotional reaction, a weak emotional reaction, simply a relevant reaction, irrelevant, or like they're just totally clueless, like I never even heard of who you're talking about. And we've done a lot of studies and looked at the things like the stock market value, the um, speed with which new products can be introduced. And the higher up you are on that curve, it's like this sloping hockey stick. I just as an example, Disney is a brand that's widely loved, not by everybody, but of course they have a passion following. They launched a new streaming service called Disney Plus about, I guess it's about a year and a half ago now. Yeah. Within three months of that streaming service being launched, subscription streaming service, they had almost the same number of subscribers as Hulu, who'd been in business for over 10 years. That's and they crazy. had 50% as many paying subscribers as Netflix, the market king. Right. That's the power. Apple over a five year period has seen almost a five X increase in their stock price. This is the kind of result that you see for a brand that's widely loved. And then conversely, you look at the streaming app title, which was a big poof you know, Jay-Z, what are you doing? Like nobody cared, nobody bought in. And the, the observation there was that they made it all about the artists and not about the consumers or the listeners of the music, um, which I'm sure breaks trust. And then you fall out of love because like, well, I liked you, but you know, I'm paying. <laughs> Absolutely. You see this. And, and, and sometimes we, we blame a category right? Uh -huh. Like for example, Sports Authority went out of business uh -huh. and that was a brand that a lot of, I mean, it was a part of people's lives, right? Um, and, you know, to me, it was a brand I would even go so far, certainly relevant brand to me, maybe even a resident sometimes, certainly not loved. Um, but, uh, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods, you know, within a couple of years is seeing massive increases in their share price because they handled the pandemic well. You know, they, they, I mean, just look at two, two, two businesses in the same category. One is gone and one is growing rapidly. And we see Best Buy, for example, Circuit City went out of business. Best Buy is doing great. Now, of course, you could argue one of the reasons they're doing great is their competitor is gone. Right. But it's also because they are resonating with, with customers in a way that their competitor that's gone into business simply failed to do. Yeah, they're adapting. I remember, you know, there's a Dick's real close to me and my son plays soccer and I'm very outdoorsy and um, and they were one of the first to text message and email. You can pick it up at the curb, keep shopping with us. Here's a discount code. Come pick it up at the curb. One of the very first, um, very aggressive in their, their digital marketing and their adaptation to what's going on in life, which right. is important, right? Um, so I love, you have so many formulas and, and one of the things about Amber Hurdle Consulting is we say we, we combine branding and marketing principles with science because we're little data nerds and that's how we help people with their, um, with their personal brands and their employer brand. We do touch on external branding, but as a continuum of, of these other two factors. So I love talking to like real true full-fledged branding people, um, that are nerdy with their science as well. What other, you mentioned watching the stock market, you mentioned um, the um, efficiency in which they get product to market. What else are you measuring in order to help you make your decisions and create your strategies from a data perspective? Sure. 
Well, you know, here's how I look at it. No matter what company you're looking at, there's probably only three or four things that they really care about in the end. Like the ultimate, you know, whenever you say, well, what are your business objectives? Well, in the end, the final goal is always one of three or four things, revenue, margin, valuation. I mean, you know, this is kind of the whole game in business, right? Mm -hmm. Now, of course, uh, and if you're the CEO, you know, that's sort of your whole job. Right. It's not to create customer love or customer loyalty or peep purchases or blah, blah, blah. None of those things. It's just on the money side. But of course, then you have to say, well, what, what, what goes before that? Well, how do you accomplish those right. things? And one of the things, because I, you know, a lot of what I do is focus on driving customer experience. One thing that I'm always sort of highlighting is if we kind of ask the question, well, how do we achieve more revenue? How do we achieve more profitability, et cetera? it almost always comes down to driving human behavior. This is the number one factor. Now, there are other factors, you know, fluctuating commodity prices and other things like that. But the truth is, if your business is successful at getting its customers to do what you want them to do, and as a bonus to get your employees to do what you want them to do, to get your shareholders to do what you want them to do, then that will cover a magnitude of sins in other areas that may yes, not be will. <laughs> And if you can't get them to do what you want them to do, then it kind of doesn't matter how good your ERP system is. Right. You know, so, so to me, it seems like every business, yes, the first top tier is about money, but very quickly you start to go to, well, who are the people whose behavior we need to influence and how do we need to influence that behavior? What is it that we need them to do? And, uh, you know, to me then, if you want to sort of play that out further, it begs the question, well, you know, it would be great if we could just get people to do what we want them to do. But that doesn't sound necessarily like so easily. People aren't puppets that you can just pull strings. The magic I keep, wand. I go. keep this in my desk, but I assure you it does not always work. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, well, and, and just like you said about about science and, and, and art, I mean, I think that there's a science to how do you get people to do what you want them to do? And a lot of it comes to understanding them. But I mean, I, I guess I would take one step further and say, well, what would psychology say is the origin of behavior? Because that's what we're talking about, private yeah. behavior. Whether that behavior is purchasing or upselling or or referring friends or or behavior we want to them to not do, like not to return the product, not to complain and write a bad review, right? Sometimes getting people to not engage in the behavior we don't want them to do is just as valuable as getting them to engage in the behavior we do want them to do. So what causes behavior? And the answer is just, you could read in any psychology textbook, just two things cause behavior, your thoughts and your feelings. Yep. That's what drives your behavior. And if you accept that premise, then the very next question you logically ask is, well, what causes thoughts and feelings? And the answer is largely your experiences. Of course, you have some sort of genetic DNA imprint that you're born with and you sort of pre certain predispositions. But beyond that, the experiences of your life are largely would have shaped you. Of course, you'd have very different thoughts and feelings today if you'd grown up on a farm in India or if you'd grown up as a, an Eskimo or whatever, you know. So the whole business of business, I think of, or if not the whole business, at least the most important activity is how do you give people experiences mm -hmm. that trigger the thoughts and feelings that drive the behaviors that align with your business outcomes. And this is what we call the user experience, strategic user experience model. And I kind of look at it every day because whenever I look at a business problem, I'm always looking at, well, okay, how do we move through that chain? And sometimes there's a lot of, I don't know. 
I don't know what thoughts and feelings drive the behaviors. I don't know what experiences will drive those thoughts and feelings, but we know how to find out. And that's usually through a variety of different types of customer research. And so a lot of the work that we do before we actually build things, because at my company, we're building things all the time, the new AAA roadside assistance app, the new Avis car rental app, or what have you, new systems for Airbus to operate satellites. But just a before few we build anything- Just a little few side projects. <laughs> well, we're very Big lucky. We, it's, no question, we, we, get, we get called in to be a part of some really cool stuff. But the reason- you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to help answer a question, which is how can you increase the likelihood of success? We've had a really good track record at designing and building applications that really work in the market. And the question is like, why? And it's not particularly because like we're so smart. It's really more about a pro following a, 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 a good process. And so the process that I lay out in my book, Winning Digital Customers, is really about how do you understand the relationship between experience and stock price? And then how do you answer the key questions to figure out, well, what experiences will create thoughts and feelings, what thoughts and feelings will lead to the business results, et cetera. And so probably a third of the book is dedicated to just getting in the weeds on, so what are all the different techniques of data analysis, ethnography and surveys, interviewing, uh, leveraging call center data, leveraging the customer experts that you have in your own organization, observing, you know, shopping behaviors, all these types of activities, social listening. How do you leverage all these different techniques? You don't have to leverage them all, but how do you become aware of the full sort of palette of ways that you can really try to get inside the minds and, and, and feelings and understand what's driving your customers? And by the way, sometimes it's also other stakeholders. Sometimes it's your employees. Sometimes it's your suppliers or your distributors or your, or your shareholders. So it's not only customers, but that's the first one we tend to think of. And you kind of become a little bit of a combination of designer and psychologist. And Absolutely. when you do that, I find that's, I would never say it's the only way to be successful. Um, there's a great story in my book about a woman who never took a golf lesson in her life, rented some clubs, went out on the course, put the ball on the tee, swings the club and gets a hole in one, the very first hole, <laughs> the very first game of golf. It can be done. You don't have to follow the right process. Yeah. It's just, much more predictable if you do. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. We're all about uh, designing environments in, in support of who we are um, as leaders. And in, in my world, it's part of the Velvet Machete leadership uh, strategy or the, the journey. Um, one question I have before we, because I know you have a five-part process that you can take people mm -hmm. through and you outline in your book. Um, I have listeners slash clients slash members slash academy students from Fortune 100 companies, big names that everybody would know. I have, you know, medium, you know, construction companies, um, you know, manufacturing companies, that sort of thing. And then I have the solopreneur, um, you know, maybe it's a interior designer, maybe it's a, a coach or a photographer. I mean, the gamut is there. So are these five steps things that that whole array of, of listeners can feed on, or is it really one for, for one audience over another? No, absolutely. It's the same five steps. And, you know, I, I think that there are ways of going through these steps that are more rigorous, more thorough. Sure. Uh, it takes more time if you have 19 different customer segments and 100 different products and you're in six different international markets to figure it all out. Mm -hmm. If you're just running a bakery in one town and 
all you sell is cakes and cookies and it's quicker and simpler to do. But the same basic fundamental process, I would suggest is the same. And in fact, I say that now with more confidence than when I wrote the book, because my career, I spent 25 years working almost exclusively with Fortune 1000 type companies. And when I say mm -hmm. type, I just mean some companies are private companies, so they're not in a Fortune 1000, but companies with you know billions of dollars in annual revenue. Sure. I don't say that, I mean, that just happens to be the domain in which I have focused my career. I mean, there's other people that have served millions of small businesses and that's right. even more impressive than what I've done, but it just isn't my expertise. My ex right. Except that I'm kind of a small business person myself. I run you an are. agency that's like a hundred people. So, I have that experience, but in terms of, I would never be my own client, you know, just because that's not who my business is, is oriented to. That's all. Uh, there are obviously great agencies that are designed to target businesses of my size. Um, but anyway, so point is, uh, so I, you know, I wrote about what I know from working with large companies, but what I've heard, of course, there are a lot more small companies, medium-sized companies than there are mm -hmm. large companies. And what I've heard since I published the book is from a lot of people in small and medium-sized businesses saying that they're applying these principles. And I'm always like, oh, wow, that's really cool to hear because they really weren't built, they weren't, they weren't developed in small and medium businesses. But what I'm hearing from people that are applying them is that they, they work just fine. So that's yeah. great. You just have to synthesize it and then like drill it down to what's relevant for you. And, and the other thing that I want to say before we break into these, these five things that you, you will, when you buy the winning uh, digital customers book, you'll obviously unpack this, but we want to kind of give you a little bit of a teaser today um, is even if you're not in sales, even if you're not in marketing, even if you're not a senior leader, even if you're not in the call center or customer service, if you are a behind the scenes support person, you are still a protector of the brand. Everything that you do day in, day out. So all my you know, leaders in large companies or even medium companies that you think, oh, I'm going to check out now because I'm not really in branding or marketing. You are by your mere existence in the company. So I want you to still perk up and listen and think about the strategy that your organization might be going through in order to make sure that you have very happy customers because when you have very happy customers, guess what? You keep your job you get to get hire more help. You get to have a happier life at work because everybody is on the same page and they're rowing in the same direction. So I just had to get on my little soapbox real quick. <laughs> no, I, I think you're uh, a thousand percent right. And the truth of the matter is many studies show that today's market, and especially if you look at millennials and blow, they're extremely distrustful of, for example, advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what you say about your brand is n usually either not heard, not remembered, or not believed. And it doesn't mean there's no point in saying anything about your, uh, your um, brand. But what I always like to say is there's really only one thing that you can do when you make a claim about your brand, which is create skepticism. Mm -hmm. That should be the goal. The goal of advertising is to create skepticism. <laughs> and like then it. we sound a little like, you know, limited uh, goal, but because at least skepticism can create a sense of curiosity to see whether it's true. You yeah. create, you're, you're claiming, you know, I mean, think about airlines and you have United Airlines. How many times have we heard that United Airlines is the friendly airline? Fly the friendly skies. But if I went around and asked people, what airlines do you think are the most friendly? Southwest. 
<laughs> well, right, right, exactly. And I also love Virgin Atlantic, which is another yeah. airline that I think really embodies that. But they don't have that as a tagline. And I'll, it just goes to show that the, the power of experience is far, far greater. People only really believe two things today. They believe their own experience and they believe credible reports of other people's experience, you know, like Amazon reviews or TripAdvisor reviews, sources where they at least have a reason to think that these are legitimate, you know, reviews, not cherry picked, not just testimonials in a TV commercial or something. Mm -hmm. And um, so the only way to really get those things is to have, as you say, have an experience that aligns with what you want people to think about you. And if you do that, then you have a good chance. And the value of the skepticism is it does nothing more than it makes a claim that lets people go, huh, I'm going to check it out. Is it true? Is it really the friendly airlines? Which means that if you really are, then maybe will, people will notice it a little bit more likely because they're sort of on the lookout for it. Mm -hmm. But if you're not, then all you've done is proven yourself to be full of it. And that's yeah. just going to harm you more than help you. You better, better off just put all that money in, into the customer experience. So yeah. uh, that's, I think, makes your point even, you know, just, just I'm just trying to underscore your point, which is experience is the powerful way to create a brand. And frankly, if you look at the most successful brands today, especially the ones that have just launched, I mean, how much advertising do they do? How much advertising do you see from Amazon? Amazon has an advertising platform. They're helping take, happy to take your money, likewise yeah. of Facebook or whatever, eBay. And, and they do, do sometimes a little bit, you know, you see them dabble. But if even Apple, if you look at the av Apple advertising budget, and Apple does occasionally do something relative to the size of their revenue, right. it's ridiculous compared yeah. to most other computer companies or consumer consumer product companies it's it's a tiny tiny fraction to them it's just a you know throwaway because they don't need to yeah yeah so true i'm again i'm an avid apple user all the things all of the things are apple in my world so that would be a relevant brand or beyond relevant brand <laughs> that would uh, destroy me um so let's dive into these five steps because i think this is something this is where you need to pull out your notebook or your iphone <laughs> and uh, put this in your notes so where do we begin um you have a proven transformation process that brands can use to improve the fulfillment of the love formula so going all the way back to the beginning of the interview we want people to have an emotional connection to our brand What's step one? Yeah, understanding the customer. You know, and I think we've laid out a lot of groundwork for that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're trying to drive someone's behavior, you have to really understand what motivates them. What do, what do they already love? What do they fear? What do they want? Um, uh, you know, what are their points of pain that they're looking to fill in, in their lives, which can mean in a giant existential way, or it can mean in a very small way, like, you know, the way they store their leftovers is kind of an, a hassle. <laughs> and if you right. offer them a better form of Tupperware, you know, there could be a huge opportunity. But, um, you know, where are those points of pain? I think that's, and obviously most businesses have a certain domain, right? They're right. in the Tupperware business or they're in the plumbing business or the accounting business or the travel business. And so within the domain that you are focused on, um, understanding their points of pain. I think that's that's the first thing. And, and many companies in my experience underinvest and then they, in, in doing really insightful customer research, they might do a survey now and again, but, but really understanding the customer. And so there's quite a lot of content in my book about how to do that. And when it, I think one of the reasons, by the way, why small, medium-sized businesses are, are benefiting from it is that I try to make the book very practical. There is a ton of detailed how-to in the book. There's also a website, password protected website that when you get the book, you get access to. It contains templates and additional videos and additional PDFs 
I'm trying to give folks everything they need to be able to go out there and do this stuff themselves. Uh, and some people will still want to hire someone to do it with them and all that. And it's always great to have people with experience. But, you know, I always say, you know, uh, and, you know, it's, it's a question of like, how much you met, you asked earlier, like about like, like, if I think about your question about small and medium sized businesses, like how much of that do you need to do? How much understanding the customer needs to do? And what I always say is talking to one customer is a lot more than zero. I mean, yes. crazy amount more, yeah. you know, and then two is like a huge amount more than one, because now you're starting to get some diverse opinions. And of course, by the time you get to five, 10, now you're getting, you know, but at, there's a diminishing return curve. And so sometimes it's worth talking to hundred or 200 customers, but very often not very often. If you talk to 20 customers, you've got 80% of what you learn from hundred customers. Right. And also in a book, I talk about different strategies. Like sometimes you want to do more, you know, qualitative research with such as interviews and such with 15 or 20 or 30 customers. And then you turn that into a survey and you send that out to a thousand customers or whatever, because now you know what to ask. Yeah. Because you may have learned things from talking to people that would never even occurred to you to even ask on a survey where you have to be more like, you know, multiple choice. So that's the first step is taking steps to understand. And then the other thing we talk about in the, in the book is, okay, sometimes you go out and do a bunch of different things. Like you look at your website data and you talk to some customers and you do a survey and you look at your comments on social media. And now you've got all this information. How do you bring it together? into yeah. kind of a unified vision of the customer. So we also in the book have a whole chapter on that process of synthesizing information, creating customer personas and making it actionable. So that's that's the first step. Awesome. Now, the the second step, this is something that my team and I have had to experience over the past year because with COVID, as a professional speaker and as a consultant who had a lot of business in um, high-end hospitality and the entertainment industry, you can imagine <laughs> how fun March of last year was for me. Um, and so we had to start going to market with new products and shifting our model and um, and really having to, so we did step one, obviously. And then, um, this next step, it can be overwhelming when you're starting something new. So take us through your second step and, um, and let's see, I'll, I'll grade myself on how well I did. <laughs> well, the second step is to map, is to map the journey. And well, I always like to think of customer journey mapping, you know, customer journey mapping classically is ultimately produces some kind of an infographic, some kind of a usually large banner that, that illustrates what happens, what's your customer's experience over time, yeah. either as they engage just with your brand, or I prefer to think of it as the overall journey that they're on in whatever domain your brand is focused on. So because if you're a plumber, it's their then, world, it's not your yes. world. You're yes, just there. Yes. Like you, you're, you're not the place that's being orbited. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. The way I always like to say it is, you know, the customer is already on a journey, whether you exist or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amen. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, I, I believe all of this work, you have to approach with a sense of humility, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and the question is, how can we help and serve and support that customer? And depending on the individual customer you're looking at, you may be a part of that journey today. You may be a part of only a part of that journey. For example, you know, if you're sell, if you're trying to help someone, um, you know, uh, get a cake for a child's birthday party, order a cake. Well, that's a part of a larger journey, which is planning a child's birthday party. And you may not have 
everything that that customer needs to plan a birthday party, and that's fine. But it's still really helpful to understand the larger journey. It's not a cake getting journey. You know, that's right. just one component of a larger journey. So it's helpful to map that out. And I always believe in starting in mapping the current journey. Very often uh, when people approach journey mapping, it's often thought about in terms of mapping the future journey, mapping the ideal journey. And that is the ultimate goal because that becomes then your kind of North Star. This is the version of the interaction with our brand that we want to enable to, to be successful in the future to create that great customer experience. But I think you have to start by saying, well, wait a minute, what is the journey we're giving people today? First of all, what's great about it? There may be some aspects that really are important and fantastic, and you certainly don't want to lose those. And then where are all the points where we're creating friction, where we're letting the customer down, we're disappointing the customer, or where we just don't have what it is that the customer needs? And I have to tell you that most businesses don't really have a concrete sense of that. Or most mm-hmm. people at businesses, they work in their area, they have an idea about how it's supposed to go. But when you start to go out and interview or observe customers or film them and really understand how someone goes to a supermarket trying to check off the items in their shopping list and just really study it. It's illuminating to the people who stock grocery stores. You know, it's oh, just yeah. not something that they, they have a vague sense of it, but then you, the reality is they may understand 60% of it, but it's the 40% that they don't understand, you know, that becomes potentially the opportunity for some new differentiation, especially if there's challenges or, or pain or, or difficulties that the customer is struggling with. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the mapping, the journey really kind of dovetails from understanding the customer, but now instead of just understanding the customer, we want to understand the journey, the specific journey that they're on in whatever domain your business is focused on. And then during the course of mapping the journey, we then shift to, okay, well, what's the potential future state? Because a lot of what we identify in the current is the pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, what pain and inconvenience and friction are we creating for the customer? And then if we were to try to eliminate those negative components of the journey, what might that look like? And then as part of that, you want to be thinking about, well, what does technology enable? What do new technologies enable? Is there a way that we can be using drones, 3D printing, artificial intelligence? Not as a, a toy to just say, hey, we should do something with New whiz bang thing, let's throw it in. <laughs> like right, with intention. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's no point in that. But what there is a point in doing is knowing what all the new whiz bang things are yeah. and then saying, okay, we have this pile of, you know, I, the way I, when we do workshops, I always show this clip. You may be familiar with it from Apollo 13. And if you remember this moment, the, 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 the orbiter is coming back down to earth. You know, the mission has failed and they don't have enough oxygen. And so they right. have to fix the, 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 the oxygen scrubbing units to get the carbon dioxide out. And I think it's Paul Giamatti, if I'm not mistaken, who is charged with going into a room and figuring out what are they going to do up there? And he, he walks into the team of scientists or engineers, whatever they are, with this big bag of stuff. And what it is, is it's replicas of all the different pieces and parts of stuff, tools that they have up in the orbiter. Because, of course, they can't run out to Home Depot, you know. And he says to them, you know, we need to make this piece, which is like one of the carbon filters, fit into this using nothing but this. And he dumps all this stuff on the table and says, this is what we have to work with. And I think that's powerful. It's like telling a group of people, look. Look at all these things you have to work with. You may not use them all, yes. but this is the stuff that we have today. And what's cool about the area that we're living in is the pile of stuff keeps growing uh, and becomes more sophisticated and capable. 
you know, computer vision or whatever, biometrics, whatever it may be. And then say, but here's the problem we're trying to solve. It's not about just using all the stuff, but about saying so which we tool have to accomplish. works. Yeah. And some of the greatest, I mean, look at what Uber did to the process of getting a taxi cab by saying, okay, well, we can use the fact that you have a smartphone and GPS and the, the car can have that too and mapping and these different technologies and put them together into something that solves a very practical problem, which is getting a, finding a taxi or a car service, getting it to you, optimizing which driver comes to you so the cost can be lowered. You know, there's many things that Uber does, saving you the hassle of having to pay when the car arrives, you can just get out. Um, and if you look at the components that they use, none of them were like super sophisticated, although some of them are kind of sophisticated, the artificial intelligence for the routing and all those kinds of things. But the point is they, they started by solving a human problem, not by trying to figure out how to use a specific technology. And that's such a more approachable way. Um, I've, I've always joked that I teach um, Wilma Flintstone how to do business in a Jane Jetson world because so many of my female clients specifically <laughs> are incredibly intimidated by technology. And, and it's really not that hard, right? I just say like, it's a buffet. You don't take every single thing that a buffet has to offer. You just take what you need that day. And so that, that is, I love how you laid that out because there are, I mean, when you talk about AI and, you know, and GPS and, and there's, you know, drive time radius has been around for forever, but I like combining the old school with the new school and saying, okay, this is what's going to create the maximum experience for the people that we are currently serving in the current conditions that we're existing in. And uh, Shantae, my project manager is like, oh, Amber's got a tool for that or Amber's got technology for that. But that's an internal thing that you have to sort out before it ever becomes an external thing, right? So beta testing and things like that, um, I'm sure uh, you all will learn through this, this um, uh, reading the book. So now we know our customers. We have mapped the customer journey, knowing that we are not the son of that, um, of that solar system. Uh, then we do what? Step three. Step three is to build it. And most of the time when you create that future state customer journey, you know, it can be intimidating because a lot of times you look at it and you're like, that is just so different from what I do today. Like, how, how do I get from here to there? And um, of course, the answer will depend on what you need to do. But very often, it's involved, it involves creating new, new touch points, such as a new mobile app or a new tool for your employees to use when they're interfacing with a customer in the store, or obviously web, web technology, an Alexa skill. I mean, it can be any one of a variety of different things or combinations of things. And you probably need both some technologies to do that, as well as to get really detailed and what these things look like and how they work. Because it's one thing to have a sort of general idea. You think about Uber, right? Well, well, the, 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 the high-level customer journey involves being able to use an app interface and, and you know call a car and know when it's gonna arrive. And okay, great. But that could have been done badly, right? Yeah. The high-level journey could have been implemented in a way that you can't figure out how it works and it's glitchy and it doesn't work correctly. So the process of, of then getting to the next level of granularity and making sure that you've actually executed that journey in an elegant way at each of the touch points. And while you know it's not necessarily all about digital, increasingly today, so much of what differentiates businesses 
is how they interact with customers in a digital way. And digital transformation has been, while certainly not the only business trend of the last few years, by far the most powerful, made, of course, even more important in light of COVID and the increased speed of the digital transformation of your customer. And as your customer changes, if you want to be successful, you have to be able to match that to, to keep up with the customer's needs and expectations. And so, so that's the third stage, which is to essentially bring your customer journey to life. And in the book, we talk about a lot of principles that come out of design thinking and agile and lean. And these are just different methodologies and mindsets that are, have been proven to be successful at product development because so much of bringing customer journeys to life is about de developing products. And a product could be something you sell to someone and they bring home and they use like an app or a toaster, but it could also be your sales, you know, your, your shopping site or your customer service experience in the, in the way that we mean product anyway, these things are all products as well in the sense that they're things that you build that your customer or employee or somebody experiences and which need to be managed and maintained over time will continue to grow, evolve, et cetera. So that's the third step. And of course that can be a long process. It can take yeah. years and years. Um, so I like which step is why four. it's why I like step well, four. It kind of takes a yeah, little right. It's like, yes, okay. yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And step four is to, is to optimize what you have because the process of going through real full transformation for many businesses can be quite a while. It can be many months. It can be many years. Depends, of course, on the size of the business, the, the level of agility they have, the amount of investment that's available. There's many factors that, that control the speed, but most organizations are working at it for a while. And furthermore, they're doing it in a race, right? Because they're trying to move to a future that their customer is already at. Right. And by the time they get there, the, the goalpost will have probably been moved. It's and so they need again. to keep going. And so while there were, and, and especially if you find that you're, you're not Facebook or Google or Netflix, you know, you're at Uber, you're not at the front of your industry. You're not one of those brands that you're cost, that's setting the bar for customer expectations. If you are not setting the bar, you're under the bar, Yeah. which means there's a gap between what your customers expect, even if it's in a different industry. I remember doing a project once with a company that manufactured MRI machines that were installed in hospitals and they cost like, I think like the cheapest ones were like 800,000 and the average was like 1.3 million or something. Yeah. And I remember interviewing customers who would say, why is it that I can buy a book for $12 on Amazon and you tell me every step of the way, when's it gonna ship? When am I gonna get it? But I ordered a $1.5 million MRI machine and three months later, you can't tell me when I'm gonna get it. You can't give me an update on the status or let me know what's going on with this order. That just doesn't make any sense. And of course, it's a totally different problem. They're yeah. building this MRI to, 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 if you're on the back end of that, you say, well, that's totally unreasonable. It's a completely different thing, but you know what? You can complain or you can win. And the truth right. is that those that are winning are figuring out how to meet customer expectations, even when they're set by something that is not necessarily a parallel experience. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. And, and I, <laughs> a phrase that a boss taught me a long time ago, and I know a lot of people hate it, but man, it has served me because I'm a very passionate person and I'm, I'm, I'm very proactive and I like to get things done and change things, but sometimes just embracing it is what it is. And I think that mm -hmm. in business is, is, you know, Amazon's a logistics company that happens to sell us stuff, you know, and if that is what the common U.S. expectation is, out of, well, I mean, international, but specifically in the U.S., we are now on a microwave, um, click here, swipe left, 
kind of world where we expect things by the end of the day that we order them. So um, yeah. those are the yeah. type of things we have to just say it is what it is. And how do we respond to that? And, so, and you know, sometimes we think of those companies that are really knocking it out of the park and say, well, those are tech companies. You know, you can't really compare me to Netflix or you can't compare me to Uber. Those are tech companies because they come out of Silicon Valley, whatever. But the truth of the matter is that they're not tech companies, right? Netflix is an entertainment company. Yeah. Uber is a transportation company. Yeah. Oracle is a tech company. Fair yeah. enough. You know, there are companies that they manufacture software, hardware for technology. Absolutely. But most of these companies, Facebook is not a tech company. Google is not a tech company. You can't go buy, you know, now to be fair, there is a part of Google that is a tech company, right? They make phones and they make operating systems, but that's a tiny that's part core. of their business, right? Yeah. They're a media company and there are some other kinds of companies too. So, but it's, it's that when a, when a media company is digitally transformed, Netflix, that's what it looks like. Now it's not the only thing it can look like, but that's what you need to see. So that if you're here and you're like, well, in order to, sorry, I realize I'm on a podcast. A lot of people are listening. But if you're on one side, you're here. And the distance between that future state vision that you've created in a workshop when you decided to just think about what you'd, if, you, if there were no limits, if you had no constraints, what would you do for your customer? What would the experience be? That's what it's going to take to compete in the coming decade or whatnot. That's what it takes to win in a digital world. So, uh, you know, you either have to go the way of Sports Authority and, or Toys R Us and, you know, and whatnot and say, we can't get there and wind down, or you need to be able to do what HBO has done and Walmart has done and oh, FedEx man. has done and the New York Times has done. Figure out what's the path from where you are to where you need to be to succeed in the digital world. Yeah. And and just for all the youngins listening or watching on YouTube, um, we used to get our Netflix movies mailed to us, like snail mailed. <laughs> And then you would watch it and then you had so many days and then you put it back into its, its packaging and you mailed it back and then you were allowed to get like what, five or six more. So when I've realized that not everybody understands the, the transformation of Netflix and the powerhouse that they are now, but they could have just been like, oh, okay, DVDs are gone. Like, well, there goes the business model, but they didn't, they evolved and they met the customer where they were on their journey in the environment that they were existing in. Um, and I think that's, that's part of kind of maybe a little of uh, step three and step four, right? So bring us home. What's step five? Yeah. The, the pinnacle. Yeah. So, so just to make sure I haven't, so step four, just to be clear, is to optimize what you have. And so right. I won't go into it in depth right now because I know we're short on time, but in the book, I, I go through a lot of mechanisms to find the low hanging fruit where you can make quick fixes to your digital properties to, you know, even if it might be duct tape and bailing wire, something <laughs> that you can find to both get some quick revenue impact and some quick improvements to the customer experience. Even if it doesn't get you all the way to customer love, you got to do what you can in the short term while you're building long term. And that's optimize the short term. Uh, and that has to happen in parallel. You know, like it's not like you do that after you build it. The first three are sequential, right? Understand the customer, map the journey, and build it. That's a parallel pro. That's a that's a, a serial process, more or less. But while those are going on, then there's this parallel process of optimizing what you have, which you can start right from the beginning. And then the last one is to lead the change. And this can be the hardest one. And by the way, it's not really the last one. I talk about it last in the book because I think it's helpful to, for, first of all, survey all the other stuff you've got to get done. But obviously, leadership starts at the beginning. And it's arguably the most important because 
as obvious as it, and we're talking about these things, like it's the most obvious things in the world. These cost companies have to change and they have to modify themselves to win the love of their customers and be relevant in a digital world. But you know what? Humans, at least most humans have a natural tendency to resist change. Mm-hmm. And when you're the person in an organization that's saying, hey, we need to get rid of DVDs and we need to just stream stuff to people's homes. I can tell you that one of the great failures of my career was I was brought in as a high price consultant at Blockbuster. If anyone remembers Blockbuster. (laughs) And part of my job was to help them create the vision for how to move towards a digital delivery of entertainment to the home. So don't hire me, right? I totally screwed that one up. But I'll tell you, the most fundamental problem we had there was resistance. The vision, and of course, we didn't know everything that would come, but the vision that we were presenting there 15 plus years ago doesn't look that wildly different from what Netflix is doing today. It's that when that, and and you could argue that that vision wasn't even that genius, right? It was almost semi-obvious if you just extrapolated where things were going. And, but when you go present that to a bunch of senior executives who are proud, lifelong retail store people. That's not how we've done it before. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know, it's like, uh, you know, Bill Gates says success is a lousy teacher. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are people who who, you know, their identity is wrapped up in worse. We run stores. And when all of a sudden you bring them a vision of the future that doesn't require stores, that creates all kinds. Of, first of all, what about all those leases we have? You know, what about all that property we bought? What about all the executives, maybe including some of the people in the room who whose value is 25 years of experience in knowing how to run a retail store. And so when you try to bring a different vision, you got to be prepared for those people are going to start working overtime to try to figure out how to slow and stop what you're trying to do, even when it's what's necessary to save the company. And so, and that's only one of the challenges you face in leading these kinds of transformations. But in the book, I try to go into what are the wide range, and I'm sure I didn't cover everything, but I cover at least 12 or 13 different challenges and obstacles you face when trying to drive this kind of transformation. Not that I want to discourage people or get them down, but I always feel like, you know, forewarned is forearmed, right? And knowing these are the potholes, because I've done this for 25 years and so, and I've been in so many large companies and I've seen all of these challenges. And so, at the very least, I can say, hey, this is some of the, this is not a well-paved road very often. And so knowing where the potholes are, you have at least a better chance of steering around them. Yeah. I actually, a, a large part of the consulting work that I have done over the years is it's either with fast growing companies or changing com- companies. Um, uh, companies are having to adapt or they're, they're bringing in completely new systems or whatever. And they have me come in because I'm, I'm very, you know, friendly and I see people and I, and I see all the different sides, but I also am able to then, once I get them bought in that they're valuable, I'm able to help them move through that change in the way that is meaningful to them. And to your point, like if there's anything that is going to screw up this whole system it is not buying people in to what must happen, which will ultimately benefit them. And, you know, I just always go back. There's two things when I'm coaching or, um, or consulting and we're, we're trying to influence people. I always ask what's in it for them and what is their greatest fear? And, and even just kind of unpacking that in, in the, um, in the C-suite, 
or just even, you know, around the boardroom at a, a moderate executive level, if there's multiple levels, you've got, you've got people in there saying, okay, well, what does this mean to me as an individual? What does this mean to my career? And then also, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to have to learn things? I'm, you know, I'm kind of at the twilight of my career. Do I have to back up and start over? And then you've got the younger people. I'm not getting paid enough for this, or, you know, there's so many things. I'm sure you do an amazing job. I didn't get to, to read through the entire book, but I think if I could, maybe this is my bias because of what I do, but if I could camp out on one area, Branding is beautiful. This whole process is amazing. But if you can't get the people bought in full circle back to the original conversation we started out on, on this episode, if you cannot influence people's behavior, it's all for not all of it. It's true. And these issues of what's in it for me, for example, are nuanced and complex. You'd like to be able to say, come on now, this is going to be great for everybody. But you know, it's not necessarily true. If you're the guy who's an expert at cobalt programming, and you're one of the three people in the company that know how the mainframe works, and that gives you huge value in that organization, and we're proposing a transformation that's going to remove that mainframe and replace it with a modern system, and we're like, but this is going to be great for you. It's like, really? It seems pretty great now for me. (laughs) So- uh, you know, and then you just have to, uh, there's no one answer, right? But you have to say, well, you know, ideally you're able to make it great for as many people as possible, but to be really honest about it and, and, and like, again, seeing those potholes to recognize that there's some people who you're not going to be able to rah-rah into. Mm-hmm. Some people are interested in making a change. They're excited about learning something new and you can show them that that's a path. There's other people who that's not what they want. Like you say, maybe they're in the twilight and I don't want to, um, uh, uh, cast a, a, a stereotype about people who are in the twilight of their career, by the way, sometimes those people are super excited. You know, they're oh, yeah. 65 years old and they love the opportunity yes. to learn something new. Yes. And then there's other people who are much younger and they're just like, Hey man, like, you know, I, I got other interests. Like yeah. I, I know how to do this thing. Uh, mostly I like fly fishing. So, you know, <laughs> like don't make my job harder for me. And, and if you're, that's what you're trying to do, then just know that I'm your enemy. And one of the things you need to know that yes, I, in the book, I talk about a lot of techniques to try to get people on board, and there's many, but also know that you will have enemies oh, and yeah. you will not win them all over. And But things can progress, even if not everybody's on board, and you need to be prepared to do that and think about how to do that. And, and that's part of the game too. You know, it's, it's part politics. Well, I'm mapping your people strategy to your business strategy. I mean, looking at your your human capital and okay, this is where we're trying to go. Do all these people want to get there? Are they skilled? to get us there? Do they have the, do we shift our, our intention, our values? Are, are these people still the right people? And sometimes it's not, and that's hard, but it is what it is. And again, all the way back to business and, you know, my listeners know my, my very non-Harvard definition of business is you have a problem. I solve your problem. You give me money. That's business to me. Yeah. And so, yeah you know, we want to bring people along and we want to allow people to share their gifts, um, their, their unique gifts in support of this bigger picture. And hopefully that all beautifully works together, but sometimes journeys end and you move on to the next thing. So, um, I guess my little caveat there is, um, rally jazz hands and fireworks is not enough. 
but also understand that some people are just going to go a different way. So um, I don't want to end on that kind of uh, quasi negative note. So before we get into um, the, the great offer that you have for our listeners, what's just some final parting advice with your wealth of experience that you would give to our listeners as it relates to just this whole um, process that you have? Well, I, I think we live in an amazing time. And now as we emerge out of COVID, obviously it's been a difficult last year, but we live in a time of, of so many cool new things that we can do. We have the opportunity to invent the next generation of whatever industry we're in. And I'm lucky enough, I get to work across a lot of industries. And, and, and personally, I, I think that's tremendous. And times are going to be good now. You know, um, I, I'm not going to pretend to have any greater knowledge than anyone else about COVID variants or economic stimulus, but it feels like that we're really heading into a period where digital transformation is more important than ever. Companies get it more than ever. Funding is being made available for it. Customers want it. Um, and, and technology just keeps allowing us to do more and more cool things. What, what gets me excited every day is the opportunity to do something that's going to make someone's lives better. And sometimes there are all kinds of obstacles to that. But right now, actually, while there still are obstacles, there's less obstacles than there were a few years back to being able to do this kind of work. So if you're if you're excited about this kind of work, then you know this is a wonderful time to be alive and a wonderful time to be in business. And if you're concerned about the obstacles, what I would say to you is, first of all, the reason we're going over all these obstacles is to make you successful, not to yes. get you down. Right. And so know that. And when you, the more you know about the obstacles, the more chance you are going to have success. And nevertheless, it's 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 a job of a lifetime to try to transform a company. It's, it can be tremendously, tremendously rewarding, not just, on the, uh, not just on the end of it, but to go through that process, to be in that fight on a daily basis. So I would encourage people to you know, find what they love about doing that kind of work and know that you know, many companies have been successful, as challenging as it is. I, I, I rattled off a whole bunch earlier. There's plenty of, it's not just Facebook and Amazon that are killing it in digital. Walmart is the second largest e-commerce company in the United States. So, and one of the largest companies, right? Large giant companies can transform to win in this space. And if your company has not done that yet, it is absolutely possible. And my mission in the world is to really help people with strategies. Because if you read my book, which I hope you will, um, it's a blueprint for what strategies work. I would never suggest there's only one way to be successful, but this is a way to be successful in a world where many companies have invested a lot of money in digital and not been successful. So this is a blueprint based on what I've seen across probably at this point, hundreds of companies, but it also requires something from you that I can't give you in the book, which is a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and persistence. Yeah. So I can't give you that, but if you can bring that what I can offer you is a path to make it work if you follow the strategies that are in the book and the supplemental websites. And if you're in the process of doing it and you hit a challenge, you can reach out to me. I'm always here to help folks. Of course, that's my business professionally. So, but even just informally, if you hit me up on social media and say, hey, I'm trying to implement the things in your book, but we hit this problem, we hit this problem. I can't promise I'll know the answer, but I've seen a lot of different situations. So very often I do. So if I can be helpful to you guys, my what I love is to feel like I can play a small role in helping all these companies with their transformations. And so that's, that's my hopefully encouraging word to everybody. I love that. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big and generous offer. So, um, 
the other generous offer that Howard has provided for you is he is giving you um, a free chapter of his book. So it's kind of a try before you buy. I um, imagine this is a part of the customer experience and journey. Um, and you can find that we'll put it in the show notes and in the, the description on YouTube. It's winningdigitalcustomers.com forward slash free chapter. And listen, even if you're not a part of a big company, you're a smaller business. I think one of the things that I was a silver lining, if you will, of, of the whole COVID experience and, and all the trauma that came with that. One of the silver linings was I think all businesses within a 12 month period really had to get caught up with having that digital presence because it was suddenly required. So everybody knows how to use Zoom now. Um, retailers have online um, systems and, and ways that you can shop online. I know a lot of my friends came up with um online stores where they didn't have it. There's kind of like click and mortar. So now that you muddled your way through that with the rest of humanity, now Howard has a book for you with a, with a whole blueprint. So take them up on that offer, download that free chapter. And then where else can they find you online, Howard? Sure. Well, I'm on LinkedIn. I do live casts twice a week on different topics in this space. Uh, you can look me up, Howard Tierski, on LinkedIn. I have a podcast uh, which comes out weekly as well. You can find me wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple Tunes, all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I'm on other social media platforms, but those are kind of the ones that I, I focus primarily on. And also my company, which is called From, uh, From Digital, you can find at from.digital if you're interested in learning more about the kind of consulting services we provide. Wonderful. Okay. And of course, all of that will be in the show notes. So you can find it there at amberhurdle.com um, or wherever you listen to your podcast. So Howard, thank you so much for your wisdom and your uh, candor and all of the goodies that you gave to our listeners today. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to have been here and great questions. All right. Um, another amazing guest. I'm super excited about the quality of guests that we have back on the show. I'm happy to be back podcasting. Um, thank you for being on the journey with me. Of course, if you enjoyed this episode, please find wherever you listen to your podcast episodes and give us a rating and review, or just give us a little thumbs up if you're with us on YouTube and um, maybe leave a comment for Howard and we will make sure that he sees it. Until then, I will see you on the next episode. Thank you for tuning in. Mentioned resources can be found at amberhurdle.com. Be sure to leave a rating and review in your favorite podcast app and subscribe so you never miss an update. As always, thank you to The Coup for our intro and outro music. See you next time.